0: Okay, Uh, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so uh, here's the deal. We need to talk about the words some more and what all of that means. We have uh, uh, an item of business first, and that is we cannot have class next week because the youth group trip to the Sistine Chapel is next week, next Saturday morning. Uh, We, (laughs) this is a surprise to nobody, we are behind in this class, by a not insignificant amount. <laughs> so it's statistically significant. It is. St- yes, it is statistically significant. And to be honest, I'm happy about that because this is the first. We've all. This class is always behind, but we've never been this behind. And that's a testament, That's a testament to this group because this group is so engaging to me and is so good at thinking and asking questions that we are behind. And honestly, I would, uh, that's the way I would prefer it to be. However, the stuff that we have coming up is not stuff that I can just skip or really even gloss over. There's two lessons I can condense into one if I have to. Otherwise, we, uh, we kinda, we, the other stuff is really important because it's all about the Eucharist. So we can't really skip that. Uh, so here is my proposal to you. This class will never go beyond Easter, Um, we typically do not meet on the Saturday morning of the Easter vigil. So so it is up to you, up to this group, what you would like to do. The first thing is that this week I can just record, pre-record a lecture uh, for the lesson that would be next week so that we're not missing a class and you can listen to it that way. The other option is that we just don't have class next week and that we come in on the Saturday of Easter Vigil, which to be perfectly honest with you is a significantly less convenient option for everybody, uh, but if that works better for you I would do it. So It's up to you if you want to just listen to a lecture and you, you, know, you won't be able to ask questions but you can always text me or email me and then if we do that we'll be on track without without really losing an o- another week. So, uh, recording or Easter Vigil. <laughs> okay, thank and, and you. we enjoyed the one that we missed. We, we thought we're, I think, good. yeah. Well, good, okay. We, we thought we're only gonna listen to half, and then we didn't want to stop. Not like we are oh. only listen to half. <laughs> and then, and, and then the come back later. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. You're, yeah, no, I understand. Okay. So that's actually much easier for me. It, it ends up, you know, with all the prep work that goes into getting Easter vigil ready and getting stuff set up for that, that's like an all-day thing. So it turns out the day before Easter is like the busiest day of the entire church year. So teaching a class, there's a reason I don't typically teach on that day. So this is good. So I will, re- I will record the lecture for next week. That'll be on prayer. That's why we can't skip it because that's really important. And then the next, the next time we meet, will be on the Eucharist and uh, it'll be sort of slamming with the Eucharist, but we can do it, and, and uh, it'll be good. So, today, we're talking about the Word. We were talking about, right before I started recording here, we were talking about um, canon versus scripture, and I said I, I should really make a handout about that, and this is why. Because what is canonical in the church includes the scripture but is not limited to scripture. Why does that matter to Lutherans? Well, what is one of the things that we tout as a tenant of, of the uh, Reformation? Scripture only. Right, sola scriptura, scripture alone. How do you reconcile sola scriptura with the idea of we actually can have readings from the Apocrypha at a Wednesday night service or that the reformers cited the Apocrypha and the recent push in the last I don't know five to seven years of hey you know what Lutherans the Apocrypha is actually important and you should all read it and you should all study it which is sort of a newfangled idea because at one point if you told the Lutheran they should read the Apocrypha you were anathema <laughs> uh, because that's Catholic <laughs> but it isn't it's just Christian so why does that matter? How do we reconcile the two? Easily, actually. There's a difference between sola scriptura and scriptura nuda. And the problem is Lutherans have an understanding of sola scriptura that is more aligned with actually American evangelical Protestantism which is scriptura nuda, which is scripture and nothing else. The nude scripture. Nothing but the Bible. I won't listen to any church fathers, I don't confess any creeds, I don't have anything except the Bible only because the Bible is the thing that, has, that contains everything. Now, true or false, the Bible contains everything. This, isn't, this is not a trick. It is true, the Bible contains everything. So here's the other question though, is the Bible clear? Not, ah, good, that was a trick question. Uh, you're, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you say yes, then I tell you, oh, really? Well, then what does this mean? And then you don't know what it means, and then you think the Bible's not clear. If you say no, I say, well, then who did Jesus die for and where is salvation? And you say, oh, well, well, well. and then you say, well, it is clear, see? So it's a yes and no. The Bible is clear on matters of salvation. By, by what are you saved? Grace. Grace. And grace comes from? Jesus. The Lord. And what's at- what atoning sacrifice is, is the place where grace is outpoured? The crucifixion. The crucifixion, right. So now that's pretty clear, right? But there's a lot of stuff that is not as clear. So how do you know what the Bible says? And this is not me saying don't read your Bible. By people who have studied it and compared it. Yes. So you can listen to... Your pastor, and your pastor has been trained as a theologian, which is different from a lay person. That's not to say that a lay person cannot be educated, but a theologian has a very specific uh, skill set and very specific training. And So you can listen to your pastor, and if your pastor is good, he continues to study even after he leaves the seminary because when he grew up and stopped being a kid at the seminary, he realized he was afraid to be a pastor because he didn't know anything because the only thing the seminary teaches you is that you don't know anything and here are the tools to learn how to learn with the expectation that if you're really going to be a pastor, you have to continue learning. Uh, So if that's the way your pastor is, then he is trustworthy and you can listen to him. And he might have opinions that are different, and that's okay than what other pastors might say, and we'll see why in a minute here. But the other thing is, how does your pastor know what the Bible says? It's not just because I am a theologian that magically I have knowledge of, oh, no, I know what it says because I listen to people who have come before me. There are generations and generations and generations and generations that have, of Christians that have come before you, all of whom have studied the Scriptures and then passed on their wisdom to the Church. So nowadays, when a theologian learns how to be a theologian, he simply listens to those who have come before. It doesn't mean that there was, you know, uniform consensus on everything, Oh man, the church fathers argued about a lot of stuff. But on all of the big, you know, big substantial issues of the faith, there is uniformity in this is how we understand Scripture, this is what this means. So actually, I have had some opinions about certain things that Scripture says and how we should interpret it, and I have swallowed pride and put away my own interpretations even though I thought they were really good because I read through the church fathers and other church theologians and nobody affirms that that is a correct reading of Scripture. And because nobody before me affirms that, I am not going to be the innovator. So I say, well, I think it could be really cool, but nobody else seems to think so. And it should be telling if nobody else seems to think so. So you are paying homage in deference to the past. That's why tradition in the church is also actually a very important thing. Tradition in interpretation, how do I understand what scripture says? And then where do you go to understand what what scripture says, see? So this idea of you can't have scriptura nuda, nothing but the bare scripture, because how do you understand it? How do I know what it says? And it's a church book, obviously, so you don't understand it if you're not in the church. That's why the, even the most intellectual atheist can quote Bible verses, but never actually know the Bible. Um, they can talk about how God is unloving because he killed so many people, but he will never understand that God killed so many people on behalf of the people that he loved. Uh, there, was a, there was a man in the news months and months back. Um, he was in a public restroom and—no, he was in a public place. and. Uh, sexually confused person began touching his daughter in public, and he turned around and beat the guy up to a pulp right there in public. And there was a big news story about this guy, and, I, and everybody was villainizing him for being violent, and my only question was this, was that act a loving act or not? depends on what side of the act you're on, you see? It's that same question, is it law or gospel? Well, it's entirely dependent upon what side you're on. If you're the child, that is the most loving act that can be performed. And we understand God from the position of child, but the world understands God from the, positions, from the position of spectator. Mm-hmm. They don't understand Israel, they don't understand the Lord's people, so when they look, the only thing they see is a man beating up another man, a God killing people. And that is not loving. So they can't, they can't uh, solve the apparent contradiction of a loving God who also kills. And yet, when any time you say Nazis, and maybe there are Nazis in heaven, people go crazy, but it's the same concept. Yes, you know, We feel that a Nazi should be killed and sent to hell because they were bad. People don't have any trouble understanding that. We There's a line in a Billy Joel song. Uh, I, think it's this, I think it's the song Leningrad and he says one of the lines is blast those yellow reds to hell and I remember at one point thinking alright yeah and then you get a little older and you think well you know maybe that isn't I mean obviously there are issues and, and war is never pretty but, on the other hand, do, you, do we even pray for the damnation of our enemies? No, that's not what we're called to pray, pray for. And um, there's a, I took a really terrible, terrible intro philosophy class in my undergrad that was taught by a lesbian feminist Jew. <laughs> and the combination is as potent as you think. <laughs> oh, such a terrible class. We had to read a book by a fellow named Simon Wiesenthal. Have you ever heard of Simon Okay, Wiesenthal? He said so, the, some foundation or some yeah, Jewish center. Or yes, 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 he was. And it was a book about... He, so he was um, f- from the Nazi era, from the Holocaust era, a Jew. And the book was really sad. And I, on, on one hand, I understand why he did this, but on another, I just cannot fathom it. And that was he was working in a hospital and there was a German Nazi soldier that was dying in the hospital and he saw this Jew who was in there working and he said, please forgive me. He said something, we have done horrible things and, and I never wanted to and I shouldn't have and I am so terribly sorry, please forgive me. And Wiesenthal said, I can't forgive you, and then walked away. And You know, I obviously can't put myself in his shoes, but that's what made me sad, is that I understand, you know, well, that's a hard thing to do, but on the and And, of course, you can't speak for the entire Jewish people, and you can't speak for God, but at least say something. Push him to Christ, you know, but you have this man here who is repenting and confessing his sins, and is there a place in heaven even for them? Is there a place even in heaven for the child molester? you know that's the that's the part where people get to be pharisees because the grace of the gospel is the offensive part about the gospel you see it's fine and dandy if you want to be an upstanding christian but then when a formerly convicted pedophile comes starts coming to church and wants the sacraments even if he doesn't involve himself in other places well all of a sudden the pastor is a villain for letting him into the church building and you you know or and that that has happened actually a friend of mine that happened in his church and it and you think, well, what are you supposed to do? Are you, are you standing up saying, I thank God, I'm not a sinner like him? I mean, of course I know I'm a sinner, but I never did what he did. Well, sure you did, just not in the same way. You know, so grace is the offensive part of the gospel because each and every one of us says exactly what the Pharisees say, which was, well, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. I can't believe, you know, I know churches for sinners, but I can't believe they would let them in here. Yeah, and it, it, so it's sort of that. Now, um, so Sola Scriptura, you have the entire canon of of books that the church has said, these are really big important books that really you should read and study and hold in high regard, and the chief of all of those books are scripture. And if any book does not line up with what scripture says, then that, is, that cannot be canon, and it cannot be a trustworthy book. But if, canon li- if, if a book lines up with what scripture says, then it's okay for the church to consider that canon and to say, this is really important for you to read. So examples of that are things like... In the, on the patristic side, obviously you have the Apocrypha on sort of the intertestamental time, but then uh, you have the patristic side of things. So the, the epistles typically are limited to actual apostles. Uh, and if you'd ever thought about it, sort of flip through and you realize, oh yeah, these were all apostles. And then disciples of apostles wrote their own epistles, which are Fantastic. And those are considered canonical books of the church that were written under inspiration. But they aren't scripture because in this case one of the criteria is that they are too far removed from Christ. Even one generation is too far removed. So people like Polycarp and Ignatius, um, folks like that, very early people who um, uh, even, even studied under the Apostle John there was i and uh, you know pastor kinney would kill me if he heard me say this i can't remember which of the apostolic fathers it was but when when jesus picks up the little child and puts it on his lap and says that you should be like this little child that is actually one of the apostolic fathers that then grows up and becomes a a disciple of the disciples and then writes things that are considered canonical by the church so uh we don't say, well, scripture only, scripture only, so never read these other, other books ever because the only thing you need is scripture. <laughs> that's silly. So th- that's why scripture alone doesn't mean s- scripture nude. It means scripture alone as the chief, as the norming norm, the thing that creates the norms, the, th- the thing that makes the doctrines. But everything else can still support them because it draws from scripture and points you back to scripture. And they can still be authoritative in the Church, as the Reformers used them authoritatively, because they're all derived from Scripture and approved by the Church. So that's the difference uh, between sola scriptura understood from an, a more Protestant side, evangelical American Protestant side, versus from the, through the Catholic tradition and in the lens of the Lutheran Church. Okay? So read your Apocrypha. Now, we need to talk about the Ten Commandments. Uh, the word of God. This is where we left off. This is what we're going to look at now. And then we've got a whole lot of other stuff we need to jump into. My my job today is to convince you, at least for the next few minutes here, is to convince you that the Ten Commandments are not your enemy, but that they are your best friend. And this is is one of the times in this class where if you are a dyed-in-the-wool, born-and-raised Lutheran, you are going to have trouble. Uh, and this is me encouraging you to go rethink, perhaps, how you consider what the law is, because this is the issue, right? So when we talk about the dichotomy between law and gospel, and I talked about this last week, we think about them as separate entities. So, you know, forgive me, Lutherans, but Frankly, this is what you look like. Law, bad. Gospel, good. So anytime there's any kind of a law, the only response is, oh, that's bad. It's law. So if I preach to you from the pulpit and I say, now come and eat the Lord's Supper and stop sinning, you go, oh, that's a law sermon. The gospel didn't predominate. Oh, now I'm going to stay away because you can't. Order me with the law to partake of something that's gospel. And that's the way that Lutherans look at preaching, is law and gospel, and that's it. And you want to know how this is going to ruin, absolutely ruin you. You're going to be destroyed after this class because you will never, ever, ever, ever be able to hear a Lutheran sermon the same way again. If law and gospel are me, looking at the text and going, which part of this is law and which part of this is gospel and how do I preach a law gospel sermon? Every single sermon looks like this. The peace of the Lord be with you. The Pharisees didn't understand Jesus because they rejected the gospel and they were sinners, like all of us, sinners in need of a Savior. But our Savior has come and his name is Christ Jesus and he has forgiven us our sins. Amen. Every single sermon on every single text is like that. And you can see, in fact, there was a funny story. A a pastor friend told me that some of his people, they knew when the sermon was almost done because they could tell when it switched from being law to gospel. And then they would kind of look and go, okay, yep, we got about seven minutes left, here we go. And because it's so telling, There's always a pivot point where, you know, the pastor, and then all of a sudden it's, ah, blah, 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 And and you can always find it. It's always there. And it's, you know, 49% law, 51% gospel, because, you know, the gospel has to predominate. But then they will never give you any exhortation, like, let us now actually pray, or, hey, you need to actually stop sinning, or like what you know, St. John Chrysostom said in some of his sermons, I saw you going to the Colosseum, and I saw you going to the, to the plays, and that is wrong. You all stop that, and I'm going to keep an eye on you. You better knock that off right now. Now come up here, get the sacrament, and start living a better life. Now what would you do if a Lutheran preached a sermon like that? Oh, it's that law and gospel! <laughs> Where's the gospel? See, but you'll never be able to hear another sermon again, because when you go to the, you know, the typical Lutheran sermon, that's how it goes, long gospel, and you can sit there, and now you'll sit there going, oh my goodness. This is the law. I just found the pivot point between the law part and the gospel. Now we're in the gospel part, and then and then you, every sermon is now broken down into a formula. And they don't preach. Many pastors they preach law and gospel, but they don't preach the text. What does Jesus mean when he says this? I don't know. Because the only thing that matters is I'm telling you that you're forgiven. Okay, but but do something. You preach the text. The text is there for a reason. So uh, that's that's the issue. Uh, what were you going to say? but I bet that your outline doesn't say what was the gospel in the sermon and what was the law in the sermon as some of us children who had those. Uh, I don't make the kids do sermon notes. Here's a reason, and I don't have to do essays either. The first first time (laughs) I was here, somebody said, why don't you have the kids do confirmation essays? And I said, this is what I said, I said, because I don't really care what the kids have to say. <laughs> I love all of the kids, but I'm teaching the kids. I know what they're learning, and I know what they know, and I examine them before they come to, to receive First Communion, and obviously if, when they're going through Confession, I'm the one that, or uh, uh, Confirmation, I'm the one that's teaching them. I know what they think, and if they're up there being confirmed, then the congregation knows exactly what they think too. I don't need Forgive me, Seth, but I don't need 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds writing me a that-aged essay to present, because they say something much better when they speak their actual words of the confirmation right, or when they actually say, amen, this is Jesus, when I examine them for first communion. That is so much better, and actually that's what I care about. I don't really care about, well, now write me an essay about your understanding of the Trinity. Do you know how many, I mean, like, how, how many years has the church written page and pages and pages and pages about the Trinity? Since it started. <laughs> Since it started, right? And we're going to have a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old write what they think about the Trinity. And that, you know, it's just kind of like, <clears throat> I love you all so much. I know what you think about the Trinity already. I don't need you to write an essay about it. And frankly, it, there are so many other essays in the church that are better. It's just, we have children, and when I don't, want to ex- I don't expect my children to be academics, so they don't, have to, they don't do essays. And they don't do sermon notes either, and the reason why is I did sermon notes, and they turned sermons into, one, into work. I didn't actually get anything out of the sermons because I was so focused on answering the questions they wanted me to answer about the sermons. And so there was like three years where I don't know anything about what was preached because I was so busy, oh, right, I've got to fill in the blanks for this and I've got to make sure that this. And and it was detrimental to me, actually. So that's one reason why we don't do that here is because I want them to be engaged um if i really want to know what they think about a sermon i will just ask them so like in midweek so i preached about this on saturday what or on sunday what do you remember about that this was our text what did i say here and you know what they actually know they can answer the questions so I, but that is also why because because notes tend to create a formula with the sermon, and especially when you say what was the law in the sermon, or something like what was the specific sin that this sermon preached against? Like, uh, I don't know, you know, there was a, there's an attitude that every sermon has to preach against one specific sin. Okay, uh, well this sermon preached about how I shouldn't steal things. Like, how about you preach about just like what Jesus talked about, and let the word be the thing that divides itself. That's the other thing. A pastor really can't divide the word even though they think that they should, and why are they going to give it to the kids and then have the kids divide it? The pastor doesn't even know what he's doing. Um, Let the Holy Spirit divide it, and then it'll be law for the people who need to hear it as law, and it'll be gospel for the people who need to hear it as gospel. That's the miraculous thing about being a pastor. I can preach a sermon, and I can have uh, 50% of the congregation come out saying, Pastor, you really hit me where I needed to be hit. You kicked me in my rear. I'm going to work harder this week. And they say, okay then the law did something to you. And then you have 50% of the congregation that comes out and says, oh my goodness, I'm so relieved after hearing that. And you think, were you listening to the same sermon? And they were! And it does different things to different people, and all of that is the work of the Spirit. So that's actually one of the things that I pray before I go up to preach is that by the power of the Spirit that the Word would work in the hearts of His people. I don't say that people would receive the gospel or have their hearts turned by the law. That's sort of a given, but I pray that the word would work, because the word's going to work. Sometimes you need the law and the gospel. Sometimes you need more law. Sometimes you need pretty much just gospel. And uh, so you don't want the sermon to be the formula. Okay, so this, that's just ruined sermons for you, t- typical Lutheran <laughs> okay. sermons. Now let's ruin the Ten Commandments for you. My uh, father had an answer when his mother asked him, what did you learn in the church today? Oh, yes. And he said, God is good. God is good. Or it's, not, right. it's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's not wrong, but at the end, I mean, but you just think, yeah, okay, God's good. That's great. I'm glad you learned that. But if that's the only thing that you're getting out of every single thing that happens in service, you know, I'm not saying that I'm the best preacher in the world or even the best scholar or theologian in the world, but I would like it if you left church every once in a while going, I never thought about the text that way before, and now when I go back and read scripture, all of a sudden, you know, uh, these connections that pastor, you know, uh, it, it, maybe this is prideful of me, but I'd like for you to, you know, once in a great long while, walk out of church and actually have something new that you can talk about instead of just saying, oh boy, well, uh, well, same old, same old, I was a sinner, now I'm forgiven, amazing grace, God loves me, God is good. And then have just, just be, because all that is is scratching the surface and there's so much more buried there. So let's look at the 10 commandments, which I'm gonna encourage you instead to think about as the 10 words. Uh, because in the Hebrew, actually, it doesn't say commandments; it just says words. Davar is just words. Mind blown again. Here we go. <laughs> now it's starting. <laughs> oh yes, the ten words. So um, remember that there's no law or gospel in Eden. The only thing that there is in the Garden of Eden is the word. And so what we want to do is get back to, the, get back to that point where there's only word. Now, as long as we are sinners and living in a sinful creation, there will always be law and gospel because you will always need one or the other. But um, when we live in, after the resurrection in the presence of God, well, there's the word and we're sustained Excuse me, by the word and the only thing there is the word. So this then uh, is what the Lord says, the ten words... And uh, so, think that these are promises and guides for you, not just mandates and you know threats. So we'll just go through these very briefly. Um, I have this divided in two: when God says, uh, and then it is as if He says. So, you know, the way that the Luther's explanation of the commandments goes in the Small Catechism is very focused on the things that you ought to be doing, which is fine, uh, but it focuses less on what that actually means that God is saying. Uh, when he says this to you, so this is expanding on that. So when he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage, what he really means is, hey, you used to not be a people. In fact, the Israelites said that you're not a people. They made fun of you because we are a people and you are less than us, you are not even a people. And I made you a people, I love you, I established you, and I want to be the one who takes care of you, I want to be the one who loves you. That's what that means. So here's what that means. You shall have no other gods before me. Just let me be a god, okay? I want to be your god. Don't, all, those other gods are really bad for you, and they're fake, and, and they're going to kill you, and I don't want that. Let, let me be the one to take care of you, okay? It's like saying you know, to your husband or to your wife, I do. Um, I am going to be the only one for you, and, uh, and I don't want you going after another because that's detrimental. It's all relational. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Hey, uh, you know that when my, I give you my name and wherever my name is, there's the fullness of myself and my person. So I'm giving my entire self to you. Um, use, use me. Call upon me. Use my name. It, it has all kinds of power and I'm giving it all to you. But, you know, use it, use it well. Don't, don't try to take advantage of it and use it poorly. I, do I really even do I have to say this? I shouldn't have to say this, but, you know, you, use it for good. Hey, that's that. Remember the Sabbath day. Hey, you don't have to feed me. You don't have to take care of me. In fact, it's the opposite. I want to take care of you. You work really hard in this sinful world. Take a break. Take a break. Sit down. I'll spread out the blanket. I'll bring a picnic basket and, and I'll give you a meal. How about that? I want to give you a supper. That's the third commandment. That's why, by the way, I get so irked when, and this is is kind of a Lutheran way of thinking about it, you know, um, why does the pastor call you if you don't come to church? And the Lutheran answer is, to find out where I was and tell me I should be in church. And I don't like that answer, because then I am sort of like a wrathful, angry God, and everything is about, you know, excuse me, Seth. Get your ass to mass. That's what it is. You know, get your ass to mass or your ass is grass. Get in here. You gotta be in here. Warm that pew dog on it. Okay, but that completely takes the entire attitude of the divine service out. Well then, what's the point? You know, then it's I'm doing it because I have to do it. And it's not I'm not doing it because it's good for me and I love it and I want to be here and I love my Lord and Jesus is here and I'm following Him. It's because someone's barking orders at me and I'm afraid that Pastor's going to drive down my driveway Monday morning if I'm not in church on Sunday. So I better go. I'm afraid that my dad's going to call me up or you know, it's something. Whatever. I don't want to get chewed out by mom, so I better go to church on Christmas, you know, or Grandma. Well, if grandma doesn't see me in church, she's going to freak out, so I better go. Okay, Um, pastor doesn't call you because he wants to chew you out. Pastor calls you so that he can find out how you are. Because pastor worries when you aren't there. He doesn't get angry. And the the pastor worries because the pastor reflects the Lord and the Lord worries and the Lord is like a mother who stays up late. Oh, they, they didn't come home for dinner where could they be they've missed dinner well another hour has gone by they still haven't i thought they were just going next door where are they you know that's the lord sitting up late at night fretting because the kids have not come home for supper Um, so that's what the third commandment is about don't forget to come home for supper okay it's a special meal that i'm i'm preparing for you you don't have to do anything it's a fancy meal you just come on in you sit yourself down i'll do everything for you i'll scoop up your food, I'll put it on your plate. I'll deliver it to you and I'll wait on you. Anything you want, I'll get it for you. Okay, That's the third commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Hey, now listen, You know we've got to have some good order here because you know the world is what it is. So I'll give you some people who will care for you. Now, people that are supposed to care for you, you guys care for them and be good about it, okay? Don't screw around and use your power in a bad way. And you who are... Under them, you know, let them care for you. That's they're like me taking care of you, okay? Their hands are my hands. Just listen to them and respect them, love them like you love me and like I love them. Okay? Easy as that. You shall not murder. Hey, now listen, I've redeemed you and I've made you, and and you are a person. You're not like any other beast. Your life is something that is sacred, and so is everybody else. Love me by loving them. Uh, Don't don't harm people. Take care of them. Be me, love them, live in harmony. You shall not commit adultery. Oh, I've given you this wonderful gift. Look at this, I'm gonna join you with another person. Let them love you. It's okay, it's nice. And also, love them too. It's a really wonderful feeling to love and to be loved and I wanna give you that gift. Here you go, that's it. You shall not steal. I will take care of you, don't worry, I'll give you everything you need. I will always provide for you. Yeah, I'll provide for everybody, and everybody's going to get different things, and that's okay. But you know that I love you, and I'll never let you go without what you need. So don't worry. You shall not bear false witness. Hey, you know how I talk? I always tell you the truth. Be like me. You're with me all the time, I want you to talk like me too. uh, we're going to have so much fun together. We're going to talk the same, we're going to walk the same, we're going to love the same. It's beautiful. And when you see me and other people, you know that they have a reputation just like you do, and you can recognize how wonderful that is, and you, know, you can respect them, and they'll respect you, and we can all live such a wonderful, beautiful life in that way. Oh, that's my promise. And you shall not covet. Everything you need is given. I'm gonna put you here, you can stay put, and you don't have to worry about anything. You see, and th- I love this one because I'm really big on the coveting commandments about staying put, you know, this is where the Lord places you. And um, he says, look, I'm gonna give you everything. You don't need to look, you don't need to look for anybody else because I'm gonna give you everything you need. You don't have to worry. And coveting is saying, all right, but I do worry. And Lord says, But you don't have to. That's, the, that's the, the gospel of the do not covets. But you don't have to worry. So coveting is always your choice. It's your choice not to be comforted. It's your choice to say to the Lord, it's not good enough. No, nothing you can say will ever cheer me up. Oh, You're like an, you know, breaking the commandments is really shrinking down from being a nice uh, adult in the faith to an angsty teenager. That's what it is. When you break the Ten Commandments, you're just becoming an angsty teenager. Oh! Julie has more friends than I do. Mark's with Julie now. He was supposed to go to prom with me. Ah. And then you're like, oh boy. And that's how Jesus comes and says, oh boy. Well, what are we gonna do about this one? <laughs> you know? Oh, it's just ridiculous. So that's what breaking the commandments is like. You're like a teenager. Oh, who wants that? And, and actually I said it wrong because I said you, you, you grow, you go from being an adult. And actually it's better to say you grow up into an angsty teenager instead of being that, you know, the two-year-old girl who thinks daddy's great and who thinks daddy knows everything and daddy says, hey, do you want to do this? And she says, yes, because it's with daddy and daddy will take care, you know, all of that, whatever daddy says, you know, or the age will, well, my daddy said this and if you say that, well, then that's wrong because my daddy is right, you know, that age. It's, it's, it's leaving that... My daddy said I never have to worry about a monster because he'll always take care of me. That's Sears' big thing is that she's afraid people are going to knock on the windows while we're sleeping. So she always goes to bed and goes, no one's going to knock on our windows, right, daddy? Like, I don't know where that comes from. I said, no, 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 sweet. No one's going to knock on the windows. And she said, well, what happens if anyone knocks on the windows, Sears? She said... Well, Daddy will get his gun and make them go back in their cars. And yes, yes, yes. And Norman the cat will get them too. Okay, yes. But it's that, you know, who, the promise that, well, Daddy's going to protect me. If anybody knocks on the windows, Daddy will protect me. Well, I don't need to go into, well, let's talk about why no one's going to knock on the windows, Saoirse. Well, no, it doesn't matter. But, you know, you become an angsty teenager and, oh, Dad, I don't need you. Oh. And it's that. So you're going from being the simple child into being that hot mess of an angsty teenager, (laughs) what a, what a pool of hormones, okay, so this is a way to think about the ten, the ten words, and every word works two ways, remember, ten words, every word works two ways, law way or a gospel way, which means the ten commandments, can be gospel too, oh no, Lutherans, See, this is the problem. When the only thing that people are ever taught is Luther's small catechism, then you don't actually learn Luther's small catechism, but you don't learn the historic Christian faith. And don't get me wrong, Luther's catechism is very good. But the small catechism was written for illiterate peasants and five-year-olds. And the large catechism was written for illiterate farmers and Teenagers, (laughs) not pointing any fingers, but perhaps there's more to the Christian faith than the materials written for kids. So, you know, learn the small catechism, obviously, and we do that every week. Um, It's good to know because it's really easy, and and it is a good thing. You know, what is baptism? Well, let me think about what St. John Chrysostom wrote in his 15 treaties on baptism. Well, what did St. Augustine write in De Doctrina Christiani about baptism? Well, you know, maybe let's not go that far. Oh, you know what I can do? I can just say that baptism is not just plain water, but the water included with God's command and combined with God's word. Oh, look how simple that is, okay? So it's written to be a simple explanation, but not the entirety of the explanation. Just a very simple one. Okay. So, the Ten Commandments are words that can also be used as gospel. Now, are the Ten Commandments ever not going to be law? No. no, they aren't. Because you're always going to hear the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, and they are always going to accuse you of sin because you haven't lived the way that they said that you should. But they are also the promises of the gospel because they are telling you all the good things that God is doing for you, all the things that God is protecting, what God looks like. Um, because the Ten Words are, of course, from God, when God speaks the 10 words to Moses and gives him the word, who is the word? Jesus. Jesus is the word. So Jesus is the 10 commandments. This is what you have to understand. Jesus' job description is the Beatitudes. When Jesus wakes up in the morning and walks into the bathroom to brush his teeth and he looks in the mirror, what does he see looking back at him? What's the reflection of Jesus? The 10 commandments. The 10 commandments is the reflection of Jesus. The law of God is the reflection of Jesus. Just like the prophets are the reflection of Jesus. See that? So when you, if we're supposed to hate the law, law bad, how can we pray with the psalmist? I love your law, O Lord. Let me meditate on your law. I keep your law, O Lord. All of this is about the commandments. Well, you can say I keep your law because the Ten Commandments are kept when what is not kept is forgiven. You can say, I love your law, because the law is Christ. The law directs you, and the law is a good thing for you, even when it's uncomfortable, because when you're over the line, it's the hand that says, get back, that's dangerous. So the task of the Ten Commandments is always to point you to what is right and pull you away from what is wrong. It's like a lifeguard that's watching you and is happy with you when you follow the rules, but jumps into the pool after you when you Fall into the deep end and can't swim, um, and then Joe gives CPR and mouth to mouth to you, which is never a comfortable thing. But I've never met somebody who was resuscitated after that and said, "Boy, I wish they hadn't done that because I hurt." Like, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but look how good it was for you. Or surgeries that are needed. There's always a, there's just a good thing in the pain. You don't want the pain or the medicine; it tastes bad, but it's good for you because it helps you. It does something beneficial for you. That's the way the law. So this is the Ten Commandments all summed up. Touch good and do not touch evil. I will show you what is good because I love you and because I want you to live. That's the Ten Commandments summed up in a nutshell. Don't touch what's bad. Touch what's good. I'm going to show you what's good. These are all the things that are good for you. And when you go over there and you touch what's good, you know, I'm going to have to pull you back. Because I want you to be here. I want you to stay put. It's all about staying put. Where, where has Jesus placed you? Okay, Questions about that? All right, so what's another part of the word? Well, this is the word proper. Now, in terms of the divine service, let's think about where we are standing now. Where is there word in the divine service? Okay, but I mean, in the structure of the liturgy, where is their word? What parts of the liturgy would you consider to be word? Well, the readings. Okay, yeah, very good, the readings. And that, the readings part of what we've talked about is basically what we have done here. The, the actual, you know, like the text of Scripture, what does that mean, what is it, where does it come from, who is it? Well, it's Christ, why do we do what we do, why do we stand, why, do, why does Pastor do that Catholic thing? No, may the Lord guard my, my mouth, my heart, and my mind through his gospel. That's all, <clears throat> that's all of that. Um, w- w- and all of that serves to confess the reality that Christ is the Word, and that Christ is working through his word, and that he is present in his word, and that his word is delivered by the Spirit. But what else is the Word? Yes, you're thinking too hard, though. Uh, it, yes, okay, that's better. Right, so the sacraments are the word, obviously, uh, because that's the word in the flesh. So you're, you're absolutely right. You're just thinking way harder than I need you to. I mean, I'm always happy for you to think, but, uh, but my, my question is really just at the basic surface level. So readings, well, obviously that's a word. Heck, we say this is the word of the Lord. And then the sermon, of course, because the sermon is tied to the word and it's, an, it's expounding upon that word, but it is also the work of the Spirit in explaining to you that word and delivering it, excuse me, delivering it to you in a way that will impact you. Um, what else? What is, what, uh, yes, there is a word of absolution, but I was, I was just about to give you a really big hint. In between the readings and the sermon is another part of the word. Just think about, pardon me, before the, the creed, creed, yes, the creed. So the big word bits are the readings, the creed, and the sermon, because all of those things are rooted in Christ, and deliver Christ, and, and talk about Christ, and explain Christ. So the creed is something that's really important. Uh, Obviously, you know, uh, the command to make disciples, because that's what the Great Commission is about, making disciples, uh, includes baptism, which we've talked about. But now we're starting really to get into the second part of that, which is teaching. And the Word, obviously the whole liturgy teaches, but there are specific points, you know, with the Word, the readings, the creed and the sermon where the word actually works in a didactic way, which is a teaching way. So the the preaching, which to be honest with you, I consider preaching to be a sacrament, personally, you don't have to if you don't want to, I'm just telling you what I personally think uh, because of what it delivers, because it's delivering Christ to you. But So preaching is delivering Christ to you, and it's that sword that's going to work both ways, and it's going to do whatever it needs to do to you um, by what the Holy Spirit judges you need. Uh, so all of this is giving Christ. Now, we need to talk about the creed. Um, all, obviously, all of this is teaching, but I'm going to give you two handouts here. This one is about the creed, why the creed is important. And again, I apologize for the language here, Seth, but I can't say this any other way. And that is, if you don't have a creed, you can believe any damn thing you want. Because a creed is an anchor. Now, part of the issue is... Well, we'll we'll deal with the first issue first, which is, what does the church say? What does the church believe? Uh, How do we understand the word? In, in how it is read to us and proclaimed, uh, and then how we are to confess it. Well, you look at this handout here. What is the importance of a creed? Why do we need a creed to begin with? Because if you don't have a creed, look at this, creeds and confessions of faith on either side of this. Your source is obviously the Bible, but if you have scriptura nuda, nothing except the Bible and the Bible and the Bible and nothing else, and I don't listen to anybody else, and I don't have a creed. All I have is the Bible. Where are you gonna go? Wherever you want. If you don't have a creed, you can believe any damn thing you want. And that is is real. You must have a creed. So the creed of the church is not actually intended to be an affirmation for you. It's a tether. You want to talk about the old ball and chain? Well, you come into the church and the creed is your old ball and chain, but it's because you want to drink a bunch of fizzy lifting drink and we want to keep you on the ground. Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, So, the creeds and the confessions of the church, all derived from Scripture, are the things that are going to keep you where you are. Now, here's why I say derived from Scripture, because it is important that the creed, as something that is canon, has as its chief source, Scripture, like what we just talked about. None of the Church Fathers write something that is not derived from Scripture. Scripture is the chief authority, sola scriptura. Nobody can trump what Scripture says. If Scripture says the sky is green, and you look up and you say, no, it's yellow, then you're the one who's wrong, not Scripture, because Scripture is the authoritative source, okay? so. And I have these passages here, and, and you can read that. All of the traditions, the things that have been handed <laughs> down, the doctrines, the things that the church has taught, we do not depart from those. If you know, My job is not to be novel. St. boy, that's a Freudian slip. C.S. Lewis said, uh, I think it's in a book called Letters to Malcolm, and he talks a little bit about liturgy, and he says, I wish the priests would stop trying to innovate. I wish that they would remember the command to St. Peter, which was to feed my sheep and feed and, and take care of my lambs, not perform tests on my lab rats or, and, you know, or teach tricks to my dogs. And the point of what he's getting at is the church is not supposed to be an innovator. If any church advertises themselves as being innovative or progressive, run away from them because that's not the church. The church is, in a sense, very much so regressive. Thomas Merton, who, he's a, sort of a mystical 20th century Catholic theologian and then got sort of into Buddhism and Eastern spirituality, which was sort of bad, but he still wrote a lot of good things. He, he talks about the Psalms and he says, yes, the church loves what is old, not because it is old, but because the old things of the church are timeless and they continue to speak to us now better than the now speaks to us. And that's the reality. Why do, we go, why do we always look back in the church instead of looking forward? Why do we want to be regressive instead of progressive? And why do we take it as a compliment when people say, you're old fashioned, you're not with the times. You say, thanks be to God. <laughs> you know, Because I want to be with Christ. I don't want to be with the times. And Christ is an enemy of the times, no matter what times you're in. So all of the things that the church hands down. Now, Here, this other handout, this is just the Nicene Creed, but it's broken down. Every single verse of the Nicene Creed has scripture there. So when people say, well, I don't believe in the creed, I believe in the Bible. What they're really saying is, I don't know what a creed is, and I don't understand the Bible. Uh, Again, if you don't have a creed, you can believe any damn thing you want. I can believe anything I want to about Jesus, but the church says you can't because the church says, this is what scripture teaches about who Jesus is. So this is why a creed, you know, why do we need a creed nowadays? Oh, why can't we just be, you know, free thinkers, man? And I, this this is a hobby horse of mine, but I really hate the term free thinker. Because if you have a thought, aren't you already a free thinker? I mean, who's bound in thinking and exercising reason and logic? Free thinking is really, it's a joke term, well, us free thinkers. It's a joke term that means atheists because they say I'm not tied down to the church, as if someone in the church also doesn't have free thought. I don't under, it's just a silly, I think it's such a silly title. Oh, we're free thinkers, but you're bound thinkers because you can't think of anything except for the Lord. Like fun, I can't. I can think of a lot of stuff other than the Lord. (laughs) I'm a free thinker, too. You want to go toe-to-toe? I probably have better ideas than you do. Your free thinkers are more bound in their atheism than uh, a bound thinker is in his religion, in his theology. I don't understand it. That's why I have a lot of respect for intellectual atheists. I really do. There's a great conversation between Jordan Peterson, who, if you don't know about him, he's a... He's a big-time intellectual who has recently become a Christian, actually, an avowed atheist, one of, an intellectual atheist like C.S. Lewis, who then became a Christian, and then he has a dear friend who is Stephen Fry from Britain, from the Fry and Laurie, the old Fry and Laurie show. Did you ever watch Fry and Laurie? See, now I feel old in this group. <laughs> hey, but Hugh Laurie from House, he and, he and uh, Stephen Fry worked together on a British comedy skit show. That was pretty funny. So anyway, he is also a pretty big philosophical intellectual, but he is an avowed atheist. So he and Jordan Peterson got together as good friends and just talked about it. like, Well, because he made a statement about um, the Christian God is an abhorrent God because he allows suffering. And then you know, say, well, I'm gonna push you on that. Why would you say that? (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously I don't believe in God, but if that God did exist, and this is the way that he really did behave, if he existed, well then he's not worth believing in because he's traumatizing. So then they just have a discussion about that. And now that's the kind of person that I actually like. I'd love to go out for a beer uh, a nice, you know, a nice Guinness on tap with, a, uh, with a, an intellectual atheist because that's somebody that you can respect and have a conversation with because they're not in the free thinkers. They're just intellectuals and they have opinions and they can back them up. and I have a lot of respect for those people, Christians and, and atheists, because if you can be intellectual and still think that they are pleasant and at the end of the day say, you know, you're a good friend, there's something to be said for that. anyway. So all of this here, if you believe scripture, you believe the creed. If you deny the creed, you're actually denying scripture because everything in the creed is scripture. The the creed is the Bible. It's just the Cliff Notes version of the Bible. Okay. Um, So how long did it, I guess this is the Council of Nicaea, how long were they in discussions and debate? Many, many months, even more than a year? Yeah, a long time. And actually what is called the Nicene Creed didn't actually It wasn't codified at the Council of Nicaea. So you can tell when a pastor's being big-headed if he says, well, actually, it's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed because it was at the Council of Constantinople that it was affirmed. It was at the Council of Nicaea that the Arian controversy was addressed and the beginnings and footwork for this Nicene Creed was was uh, set, but it was 381 A.D. when the creed was officially codified. But that's one thing that people look at and say, well, the creed, the creed wasn't invented. I love that when they say invented. The creed wasn't invented until 325 at the earliest and 381 at the latest, so that's already 300 and some years after Jesus, Uh, so why should we believe it? Because the Catholic Church invented it. And you say, okay, Um, didn't invent anything. They just said what the Bible said. (laughs) Because here is the most important question in all of Scripture. Are you ready? It is this. O disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, this and that, and this and that, and this and that. Okay, O disciples, but who do you say that I am? That is the most important question of the Bible. Who do you say that I am? And here's why. So you can... I, this, I always push people on this because it's fun for me, even though it isn't for them. Uh, when people say, I believe in Jesus, so, well, we're all united, right, because we all believe in Jesus. So, maybe. What do you believe about Jesus? Because the people say, well, I believe in Jesus... Most of the time, that's a historic belief. I believe that Jesus existed and that he performed these miracles and that what the Bible says Jesus did, he really did. But then you say, okay, but what do you believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus? And then all of a sudden, you've got half a dozen answers. When really, if you say, who is Jesus, you can say, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. That's who Jesus is. So... The creeds answer the question of, who, who do you say that I am? And the thing is, Jesus is always asking that question, who do you say that I am? Letitia, who do you say that I am today, right now? Brenda, who do you say that I am tomorrow? You know, so it's always about, who do you say that I am? And the thing that tethers you and the thing that gives you confession is the creed. Um, So that's why the creeds matter. Now there are some quotes I want to give you. Yaroslav Pelikan. Does anybody know that name? I told Carolyn, you know, if we have if we have another boy, we should we should name him Yaroslav. (laughs) She wasn't bored. I just don't understand her some days. Maybe another one in his class. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's what I want. And my uncle used to say, "I want to name my son Vladimir, so then I can call him Vlad." Hey, little Vlad, let's go. And I said, "And I'll comb his hair to a little point." <laughs> okay. Uh, I love this class. Um, so Yaroslav Pelikan was a Missouri Synod Lutheran. He actually was one of the founding or the beginning workers on the Luther's Works Collected series. So if you look at the citations from that, Yaroslav Pelikan's name is there. And then he ended up going um, into the Eastern Orthodox Church, I believe. But very uh, solid, good Christian man, an intellectual. I enjoy him a lot. I like a lot of the things that he's written. Historian, he wrote a four-volume set on the history of the creeds and confessions of the church. And I drool over, that's something I covet, because I don't have the money to be able to afford that, because it is expensive. But it is a, it's a fantastic volume. See, they had it at the library in Fort Wayne, so I, you could go in and just read it. It was referenced, so you couldn't check it out. But. Big thing, four of them on the creeds and confessions of the church. That's it, four giant volumes broken up by time period. This guy is just great, but he talks a lot about the creeds. And this is from an interview that he did, and I love it. What is it about religious faith that needs, or excuse me, what it is about religious faith that needs creed is that religious faith in general, prayer addressed to whom it may concern, sentiment about some transcendent dimension otherwise undefined does not have any staying power. True, if you want to be spiritual but not religious, you go on ahead, but you're going to get lost and you're going to lose it because it has no staying power. It's okay to have that at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning when you're out with your friends somewhere, but in the darkest hours of life, you've got to believe something specific. And that specification is the task of the creed. Because much as some people may not like it, to believe one thing is also to disbelieve another. To say yes is also to say no. And that point is incredibly important. Because what you confess in the creed is not simply affirmation. It is also rejection. So you reject any and all who say that Jesus and that Jesus and the Father are from separate substances oh, arianism you reject anybody any teaching that says that there is no trinity simply one god who manifests himself himself in three separate ways oh that is uh, a heresy that the trinity are just three parts of one being oh, that's another heresy uh, the idea of Nestorianism, that Jesus really only had one nature and that he hid, you put on a, like a, like from, you remember Men in Black? There was the cockroach that was in the suit. That's what Jesus was. He put on a suit. And uh, he, put on a, he put on a human suit, but he was really just fully divine, just in a costume. Well, that's see, but you have to reject all of those because you're affirming what's in the creed. Right, So the creed is something that describes, it is, it is descriptive because it says this is what the church looks like, but they are also prescriptive because they say this is, uh, if you want to be the church, this is what you have to be. The Athanasian creed is honestly one of the best at doing that. It's on page 319. If you want to look at it, you don't have to. Um, it's, it says, whoever wishes to be saved, must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. And the Catholic faith is this. And then at the end it says, whoever does not hold this faith cannot be saved. Is that descriptive or is that prescriptive? This is what Lutherans, Lutheran pastors like to argue about this. It's so stupid. Is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it telling me what to do or is it just showing me what something looks like? I'm going I'm to solve this problem for all of you in case you ever run into the is it descriptive or prescriptive debate? Okay, If it's prescriptive, great. It tells you what to do. The creeds are prescriptive. You must believe these things. This is what the church believes. The thing is about descriptive things. Well, if it's just descriptive, well, then we don't have to follow it, really. It's just, you know, painting a picture. Okay. It's not outright telling you do this like a prescription. It's describing something. Oh. But here's the problem with that. If the creed paints you a picture of what the church is supposed to look like, and you don't look like that picture, are you in the church? (gasps) All of a sudden the difference between prescriptive and descriptive falls away, because there really isn't a difference. (laughs) Not in the church and not in theology. Is this prescriptive or is it descriptive? Because if it's descriptive, I don't have to do it. What's the difference? One is outright telling you to do it, the other one says, this is what the church looks like, which also says, if it doesn't look like this, it isn't the church. So, you know, if you think it's only descriptive, then you'd better make sure that the description of you matches the description of What that is, because they've defined that description as being what the church looks like, and if it's prescriptive, well, then you better darn well be just doing what it says. But in either case, it's telling you to do something. You know, you want to know what the biggest problem with pastors is? They think too much. They think too much and they talk too much. They don't listen and they don't learn. Well, and you know, that's an indictment against myself, too, because we all can be better about that. We all can be better about that. So I've got, there are some other quotes from Pelican here. And, uh, oh, I already have this. I don't need that. So I'll pass that around. And I, I want just to read, I just want to read uh, this to you. Wherever the message is preached and brought in, whatever language it comes from, the language it comes to and the culture into which it penetrates must, and this is the message of the gospel, at some stage of its maturation learn to answer again the question who do you say that I am? Because the you say in that question is the culture in which we live. He's not asking who does the fourth century say that I am when it was writing in Greek. That is important because without that we wouldn't be where we are. True. But at some point, you have to be who and what you are in the only culture in which you're ever going to live, the only century in which you're going to live and die. And in that century, you have to answer with whatever linguistic and philosophical equipment you have, you have to answer the question, who do you say that I am? That is the creed. You must answer that question. And it isn't just something that you answer on Sunday morning. This is another reason why we have the need for creed. Why does the church need creed? Because the creed gives... Guidance to your life. What confession do you make when the culture looks the way it does around you? How do you live? What do you say about Jesus when the whole world is saying something else about him? You live tethered to the words of the creed. I love this. You know, I'm reading these out of order, but the top one. All of us are, in one sense or another, pupils of Socrates. Of course, uh, who is the wisest man according to Socrates? How is wisdom measured? Wisdom is measured in knowledge, but not in the way that you think. Wisdom is not measured by how much knowledge you have, but by how little. Which is not to say that the ignorant person is wise, but the unlearned person who knows that he is unlearned is the wisest person of all. That's what Socrates says because he is the one who sees himself for who he is and understands everybody else for who they are and at a point where he can become nothing but wise from knowing that he has an empty cup to be filled. Now, of course, he said that in defense of himself because he was claiming that he was the wisest man on earth and they said, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, because I was told that the, the oracle told me I was the wisest, and I realized it was because I didn't know anything. So I went to all the wise people, and I asked them questions, and they couldn't answer me. And I realized they weren't wise because they didn't know that they weren't wise. And, um, spoiler alert, they killed Socrates. Socrates. <laughs> Yeah. So, But anyway, we're all students of Socrates. John Stuart Mill said that humanity cannot be reminded often enough that there was once a man named Socrates, and that's right. But there are no temples built to Socrates. Nobody ever wrote the B Minor Mass, Bach wrote that, you should listen to it, in honor of Socrates, because he calls upon people to learn and therefore to be honest with themselves, but he does not call upon them to take up their cross and follow. And both he and Jesus died for what they believed, but Jesus died in the conscious commitment to the salvation of the world. Big difference. So you must confess, who do you say that I am? And then you confess with the words of the creed. Now, lest you think that the creed is your own, I have one more handout here. And this is one of my all-time favorite handouts of this entire class. I love it, love it, love it. All right. This is uh, written by a fellow named William Willimon, who is a liturgical scholar, very bright, writes a lot of very nice things. This is what he has to say. In a church history course in my last year at Yale Divinity School, this is while he was working on his Ph.D., The professor invited an orthodox priest to lecture. He gave a rather dry talk on the development of the creeds. At the end of the lecture, an earnest student asked, Father Theodore, what can one do when one finds it impossible to affirm certain tenets of the creed? The priest looked confused. Well, you just say it. It's not that hard to master. With a little effort, most can quickly learn it by heart. No, you don't understand, continued the student. What am I to do when I have difficulty affirming parts of the creed, like the virgin birth? The priest continued to look confused. You just say it, particularly when you have difficulty believing it. You must keep saying it. It will come to you eventually. Exasperatedly, the student, a product of the same church that produced me, I believe the Anglican church, and a representative of the 60s, pleaded How can I, with integrity, affirm a creed in which I do not believe? It's not your creed, young man, said the priest. It's our creed. Keep saying it for heaven's sake. Eventually it may come to you. For some it takes longer than for others. How old are you? Twenty-three? Don't be so hard on yourself. There are lots of things that one doesn't know at twenty-three. Eventually it may come to you. Even if it doesn't, don't worry, it's not your creed. At that moment I realized what was wrong with much of the education I had received. A light shone. I got saved from the 60s. I thanked God that in my ministry I was not being left to my own devices. I did not have to think for myself. Saints led the way. As a theological educator, I need to recover a sense of myself as accountable to the church rather than subservient to the academy. Boy, those words have aged very well. I need to listen to the church more carefully than to the alleged issues of the day. Only then might we as leaders of the church be given the grace to allow our people to rise above the merely contemporary and to engage in critical thinking worthy of the name. Theological education begins by being formed by the saints. So, you know, the old language of the creed was, we believe. That the congregation speaks, we believe, and it's still fine to say I believe, too, actually, because in the Latin credo, which is I believe, that isn't, this is the part I love about this class, ready? It's not you. When you say, I believe, it's not you going, well, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe in uh, God the Father Almighty. I don't know about you. It's not you. Who is the I? The church. the church. You're speaking with the words of the church. So whose creed is it? Not yours. What happens when you come to me and you say, I just really, how can Jesus be born of a virgin? I say, Beats me. (laughs) I don't have an answer for you. The angel didn't have an answer for Mary. All he said was, well, now Mary, all things are possible with God. And Mary said, oh, you know what? I defer to you. Okay. The creed is not your personal affirmation of faith. In fact, what it is is you submitting to the doctrine of the church. You are submitting to the words of the church. The church says, this is what I say what do you say and you say I don't know mother what should I say and she says why don't you just say what I say so what if you have trouble believing in who doesn't have trouble believing in the virgin birth let's be honest okay if you really start getting into your own head it's difficult to affirm the virgin birth intellectually and independently but it isn't hard when you just say My confession is the confession of the church. What's the confession of the church? Oh, okay, this. I know I have trouble believing that. Well, then just keep saying the creed again and again and again because it isn't your creed. You saying those words is not your personal affirmation. It is your personal submission to words that are not yours and that are going to work on you. How do you learn to believe in the virgin birth? By saying the creed. (laughs) just keep on saying it. It's not your creed. This is the most beautiful thing about the creed. You don't have to rely on your own intellect. And even the pastor, and this is, again, why why we have the creeds and the confessions, why we look back to the church fathers, too. I don't actually have to worry about giving you something original. I don't have to fret every week about, oh, what am I going to say about this text this week? I can go, well, what do Augustine and Bernard of Clairvaux and Ambrose and all these guys say about this text. Maybe, maybe I can learn something from them and then, and then teach that to my people, too. And guess what? Bernard and Augustine and Chrysostom and Jerome and Ambrose, they all said exactly the same thing. What am I going to give to my people? I'll look back to what's been written before. They all do the same thing. You give deference in the church to the saints who have come before you, to the teachers of the church who have come before you. And the church is all about receiving and passing on. You aren't taking it and then making it into something else. Or making something of your own to give. It's not about time capsules. Well, what is what are the, what's the future church going to remember about the 20th century? What is the church going to remember about the 21st century. Frankly, I don't think there's much in the 21st century that's worth passing on. So we better pass on the stuff from the 1st century, yeah? the stuff of Jesus. And how do we do that? By the Word and by all that is based upon the Word, specifically the creeds and confessions of the Church. Questions? Yes? So which uh, a creed? which it's a good question, and I don't know that I can answer it probably to your satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Every church from the Catholic tradition would uses the creed. I think some Methodists use a creed. Um, the Anglicans would use a creed. Uh, evangelical church, American evangelical Protestants and non-denominational or evangelical free churches will not use the creeds. In fact, they say, no creed but Christ. And then you say, all right, what about Christ? And then they look at you and they tell you and you say, did you know you just confessed a creed? And they say, no, I didn't. It was my personal belief. And you say, well, all right, whatever. Okay, but so they don't do a creed because they don't in their own words, they don't want to be tied down, which any church that says they don't want to be tied down, you should run away from because you, you actually want to be tied down. You have greater freedom in being tied down because in being tied down to the truth, you have all the freedom of what it means to live in the truth. If you're blowing wherever the wind blows, you're actually not free. You're bound. You're bound to the wind. But you have nothing substantial. And and in some cases, like the poor student here in this example from William Willimon, you get bound to your own intellect, and then you start to think that what I believe as a Christian is actually dependent on me, instead of saying, well, the the creed isn't my confession, and it isn't my... It's not my church, it's not my confession, these aren't my words, these are the words of the church. And every time I say them, I am submitting myself to what the church says, and then that's going to work on me to make me a humble Christian to believe more firmly in what the church believes. And, and even if it, it never comes to me, the creed is always an exercise in that, reminding myself that even when I say, I believe, it's not me saying, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe this, that, and this and that you know, two Christians getting together having dialogue, it is two Christians coming together saying the same thing because the I is the I of the Holy Catholic Church through the ages. So you're better off being bound. Just like you're better off being bound to Christ than you are, and this is a unique problem, actually, in America. It's interesting that all of the different cultures of the world, wherever the church is, they all have... Every church has issues, and every culture has issues, but they all have unique issues. So in America, our issue is freedom and autonomy and independence and liberty, because that's what our country is founded on. That's our founding values. Our Constitution gives us all these rights. And then we think that when we come to the church, we get to bring all of those things into the church and we don't. And that's a shock for many people who think things like it's my, I should have a decision in voting about what the new pyramids are that we get or what color the walls are of the sanctuary and things like that and then you say well actually this isn't a democracy it's a hierarchy And while we have input on temporal affairs out of necessity, spiritual things are not up for debate because you don't actually have freedom here, you don't actually have autonomy here, you don't actually have liberty here, um, and I don't care about your opinions here. That's the bottom line. Now, I'm not saying that I don't value you as intellectual people. That's not what I mean when I say I don't care about your opinions. What I what I mean is that when you come into church and you say, well, I think that the creed we should only do, you know, once because it, I don't get to toad holler on time. That's your opinion, but I don't care about it. Or if you come in and you say, well, I disagree with the church's teaching about abortion because I think that, it, then I say, well, uh, it stinks to be used. Sorry, but your opinion isn't valid here, and I don't care about it because in the church, this is what the church says. So everything in the and that applies to me too, by the way. Remember this: I don't speak opinion. Um, so all of this is, is rooted in what the church says. We all together, even your pastor, submit to the church. Mother church, what does she say? What have we received from her? What are, how are we gonna talk? We, you know, You learn your language from your parents and it's the same in the church. How do you speak? What language do you use? The language of the church and of her bride, Christ. You learn to live like Jesus and like your mother, the church. You learn to speak like Jesus and like your mother, the church. What's the creed? You're speaking like your mother. It's like learning your ABCs as a toddler. You're just learning. And what is confessing the creed? Well, it is speaking back what the Lord has said of himself. So the Lord says this about himself, and the church says, Ah, yes, okay, this is what you've said about yourself. I'm going to boil it down like this, and then this is how my people are going to speak of you. And the Lord says, That's just fine, sweetheart, because that's what I've told you. So that when you're confessing the creed, you're using the language of Jesus, who said, This is who I am, and this is what I want you to say of me. And you say, Okay, this is who you are, and this is what I'm saying of you and you are using the language of the church who has said now this is the way that we're going to speak how Jesus wants us to speak of him. So everything in the church is really about deference and submission. Any other questions? Okay, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done,